0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. We are, as Mike said, going to continue in our sermon study through the book of Romans. And as we get started, I want to... I wonder what you, uh, I wonder what you think about. Wonder what you think makes a good wife. Now, before you answer and lose your marriage, gentlemen, let me let me let me help out just to try to save some some conflict. Let me head this off. Let me save off some yelling that will undoubtedly ensue should you get this wrong. Let me quickly intervene and say that I'm specifically talking about the wife as is described in the New Testament. One of the word pictures, one of the metaphors, one of the analogies for the church. Specifically in Revelation 19 and Revelation 21, the church is called the wife or the bride of Christ. Frequently uses a bunch of different images, but that's one that the New Testament likes to use is that the bride of Christ, and she is being prepared, she is being beautifully dressed in anticipation of the return of the groom. And so by definition, she's not fully done yet. Sometimes she can be a little bit messy, sometimes she can be, well, kind of a mess on the whole, but what we know is that Jesus absolutely loves his bride. In fact, we say this all the time, you don't get the groom without the bride. Jesus is crazy about his church anyway. And I like this idea, I like this image of a bride, of a wife, because it demonstrates how Christ covenantally binds himself to us. That our marriages are actually demonstrations of the gospel. supposed to be. A covenant is a solemn binding built for blessing. You go into the covenant of marriage for the good of the other. Now, maybe you didn't know that until just this morning, but let me just tell you, that's what your marriage is to be about. You enter into it, you covenant yourself to the other for the good, the joy, the blessing of the other one. Jesus binds himself to the church for the blessing, for the betterment, for the beauty of his bride. And so it's a symbol of how he is bound to us for our good. And so picking up on this metaphor of the bride or the the wife, I want to talk about sort of what I think is a biblical New Testament model for the church that will prepare us for our passage this morning in Romans chapter 12. So this model of church, WIFE is an acronym that I like to use when I talk about what the church is all about, what the church does. So the W in WIFE stands for Worship. This corporate gathering we do on Sunday mornings to give praise to God in one agreeing voice and to hear God speak to his people by his spirit through his word. We come together and we agree with one another that this is what our God is. This is what he's like. This is what he has done. This is who he has declared us to be. We have this great common denominator. We worship. We proclaim his worth. It's a lot of what the church does in this age is simply respond to God to say, He's amazing. He's worth our focus. He's worth our attention. He's worth our affection. And when we meet together, the church gathered on a Sunday morning, we are proclaiming that Jesus is alive. We celebrate the resurrection that on this day in history, one who was dead rose again and is alive forevermore. That's one of the things that the church does is it proclaims the life of Jesus. Then there's the I in wife for instruction. With all the various contexts of, of teaching, of Bible studies, youth groups, children, women's groups, men's groups, life groups, discipline groups, uh, whatever those things uh, take different shapes and sizes. All those things where we're leading one another in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the instruction component of the wife of Jesus. And there's the F for fellowship. Fellowship. Yes, it's the people of God gathering together in various contexts to enjoy one another's company, to partake perhaps in a meal or to have a time of prayer or encouragement or compassion or care or concern or nurture, those kinds of things, where we just enjoy being together as the family of God. And then finally, after worship, instruction, and fellowship, we have the E for edification. This is all the programming where we actually use who and what we are to build the body of Christ. The various ways in which we're rooted deeply, Paul says in Ephesians 2, and built as a structure as the people of God in this age through various services, ministries, things like counseling, evangelism, discipleship, missions, those kinds of things. This W-I-F-E, this is to be the bride of Christ, what we're to be about until the return of the groom. And it's all very, very pertinent and important for our discussion today, but it has, because it has to do with you immediately, right where you're sitting this morning. It's been said that there are two things that you simply cannot do alone. Two things that you simply cannot be about alone. Number one is Married. You can't be married alone. By definition, that ruins the whole thing. If you're married and completely alone, you're doing it wrong. Right? That's not good. That's not good. Second is be in church. You can't be in church all by yourself, which unfortunately, I think, in the last hundred years or so in our culture and context, we've sort of celebrated and elevated the notion of the individual, that it's about you and your personal private relationship with Jesus, which sounds nice and convenient, but it's distinctly unbiblical. You can't be married alone, you can't be in church alone. If you try to do either of them alone, you're doing it completely wrong, and therefore not at all. So then, what we're gonna discover in our passage today is an incredibly practical outworking of all the 11 chapters that we started from the Book of Romans in August 11th of last year. In view of all of this doctrine, all these things that God has done, Through the lens of that mercy, this is now getting into the so what and now what. And Paul's going to write this, what he writes to this church in Rome, and it was a familiar problem. Paul's sitting in Corinth when he writes the letter to the Romans, we believe, and he was certainly dealing with a very similar problem in Corinth. He had written similarly to the churches in Ephesus and in Colossae, and then Peter had written very similar to the churches of what is today north-central Turkey, which is instructive it tells us that churches all over that time and place were all sort of succumbing to this gravity of depravity and churches were beginning to fall into a pattern and a pursuit of self rather than the group. Now that's interesting. All these different churches at different parts of the Roman Empire were all struggling with the exact same thing so that when Paul writes this, He's saying, listen, we need to rethink our thinking about who we are and what our role is to be in the church. Paul will say elsewhere, just like marriage creates this environment and this dynamic for some aspects of you to come alive, There are some aspects of you that will lay dormant until your wife draws them out of you, until your husband draws them out of you. Some for good, some for bad. That's up to you guys to decide over your blue plate special at Luby's. I don't know. I'm just saying God's given you a spouse to sometimes draw that bit out of you that might otherwise lay dormant in the same way church with all these others that are seated around you is precisely the thing that god uses to sort of magnetically draw out of you the thing that he has for you in this life there are some things that when you became a believer you received that you have but if you never actually engage with others those things in you will lay dormant and will never spring to life and you will therefore never actually be fulfilled The others that we often try to merely tolerate between the parking garage and the brown chairs are not just in our way, believe it or not. In fact, that's our big idea for the morning. It goes like this. Others aren't in the way. Others are the way. You can't actually be who and what you are created and recreated to be without the others of the bride of Christ drawing it out of you. So we're going to get incredibly practical, intensely, immediately pertinent to every one of our walking around lives this morning. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 3. And I want you to sort of think about it, is just imagine, what would it be like? What, would if, what if this place became the kind of place where the people we encounter were viewed by each of us as the actual instrumentality that God would use to increasingly transform the rest of us into the image of his son. Candidly, that's not often how people in church view the other people in church. But what Paul's going to tell us is the people that are sitting around us, the others, they're not in the way, they are the way. That's a complete difference in view. It's a complete rethinking of our thinking, and our passage this morning is going to set us up for that. So, Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 3 to 8, very brief this morning. While you're turning to Romans 12, verse 3, I want to remind you, this all fits into Paul's overarching thrust and theme of the book of Romans. It is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ a group of people who have received that righteousness of God in the person of Jesus Christ freely. Here's how then they shall now live. So, Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. This is a perfect passage for a proclamation of the gospel of God that Paul gives throughout the book of Romans. The gospel of God, the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and Therefore, by definition, to one another. Since we have been redeemed to Him, we have this great common denominator. We'll talk more about this in verses 3 and 6. The great common denominator that actually unites us. It's a very practical thing. Now, in verse 3, Paul sort of does a play on words. He spent the first two verses of this chapter saying that we are to present our material lives, our bodies, as living sacrifices. And when we do that... We are to be transformed by God. It is his responsibility, and we have a responsibility. Or rather, he is responsible, ultimately, and we have a responsibility. God transforms us, our lives, by the renewing of our minds, by the rethinking of our thinking. Well, Paul says that that is your logical liturgy at the end of verse 2. Now, more specifically, more precisely, more applicationally, in verse 3, he's going to use this word four times, all about your thinking, your thinking, your thinking. Your thinking needs to be different. You have to really understand the the practical implications of everything that I've said for 11 chapters, Paul says. Now, this is how it's supposed to impact your thinking of yourself and the people around you. So again, Paul says in chapter 12, verse 3, for... By the grace given to me, I say. Paul's invoking his apostolic office and authority. Like, I want to say this as strongly as I can, Paul says, but I'm gonna say it delicately. By the grace given to me, what he means is, as an apostle, I am imploring you. I am beseeching and begging you. But I'm an apostle. I have that office by grace. I didn't earn it. I didn't achieve it. I didn't win anything. It was given to me by a grace. And so now, because of that authority and that place, I want to say to every single one of you, earlier in the book, he has been rebuking Gentile Christians for their looking down on Jewish Christians. Elsewhere, he rebukes Jewish Christians for looking down on Gentile Christians. Now, he's going to speak to everybody. I want to say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, Paul seems to understand then what we also implicitly understand now that most people have an overinflated view of themselves. I mean, we'll say things with false humility from time to time like we, oh I'm not so great at that but really and truly we are the center of our own universe. It's our universe and everything else is orbiting around it. Everyone else is just kind of in my way. Don't believe me? Find a group picture. See how quickly you immediately gravitate to finding yourself in the picture you find this great picture there's my high school graduation picture there i am and you don't really even care that there's anybody else in that picture their parents care that they're in the picture you don't care that they're in the picture you care that you're in the picture and how you look and wow how you had the pharaoh wings i mean right you looked amazing back then you still do it's incredible how we really are the center of our existence Paul says, I don't want you to think too highly or by transition or too frequently of yourself. Think rightly about yourself. Not that you're a sorry, no good, such and such. No, 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 no. But not to think too highly of yourself, but to think rightly. In fact, I want you to think of yourself through the lens of the gospel. Now, he kind of unpacks this and gives us something very interesting here. I don't want you to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober thinking. It's all about his froneo, the attitude, the mindset, the lens through which you view the world. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now that little expression has tripped people up for 2,000 years. It's really not the whole point of his passage, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. But what Paul's talking about here is that the standard with which we are to view ourselves is the faith that God has given. It is not that this person has been given this much faith, that person has been given so much more faith, that person has been given so much more faith, so that there's like the freshman B team, the junior varsity, and the varsity faith squad. That's been applied and taught for 2,000 years errantly, so it's not Paul's point here, or any place else that he uses that kind of language. What he's saying is the standard through which, the lens through which we are to look at ourselves, is the fact that we have been granted, given faith. That's how we are to think of ourselves. We were rebel brigands, opposers to God, haters of God, and he gave us faith. And we believe. That's how we are to think of ourselves, and that's how we are to think of other people as well. Each according to the measure, the standard of faith that God has assigned. Verses 4 and 5. Now we're going to get this idea of interdependence. Again, this is sort of a recent phenomenon in our culture and context for the last hundred years where we celebrate and elevate individuality. the Sort of the Clint Eastwood Christian, the Marlboro man, you and your personal private relationship with Jesus, not a biblical idea. Paul says, no, actually we are all belonging to one another. He uses this metaphor of a body. Verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, And the members do not all have the same function. By definition, for there to be unity, there must be diversity. Unity without diversity is uniformity. That is a distinctly non-biblical idea. What God does want is a whole bunch of different kinds of people who have different manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit who come together for a common purpose through the lens of the gospel. That is unity. Can't merely have unity for unity's sake. Many times people say, we need to have unity. What they really mean is, I need for everybody to agree with me. And then everything would be awesome. Well, by definition, that's not unity. That's uniformity. Never a biblical prescription. As in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though we are many, are one body. In Christ, and individually, members of one another. We don't merely tolerate and exist around one another. We actually belong to one another. We need one another. We're not merely tolerating one another. If the body has nothing but legs, it can sure go a lot of places, but it has no idea where it's just gone. If the body is nothing but ears, as in my case, it can sure hear a lot of things, but it has no idea what it's listening to. It all requires everything. The hand has to have the ear. The eye has to have the leg. All of these things are mutually interdependent and no one is more important than the other and they are belonging one to another. There is this interdependence that God actually has. So again, I want to say, others aren't in the way. Others are the way. And when we come into proximity with one another, that is the magnetic force that draws out of us who God has intended for us to be. Well, in verse 6, he's going to start laying out some of these gifts. Verse 6, he says, having gifts, and Peter will say that every single member has a gift, a supernatural gift, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. It's the same expression. First it was faith, now it's grace. According to God's sovereignty, his dispensed liberally gifts to the people of the church to accomplish above and beyond what they would expect to accomplish in their own strength. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Here's the whole point of the passage. Use them! Let us use them! That's the whole admonition of the passage. Do something with it. If you are a believer, you have been the recipient of a gift. And again, that gift is never, ever, ever for you. I say this all the time. I want to say it again. The goal of sanctification is not your individual sinlessness or betterment. The goal of sanctification is always the edifying of the body of Christ. The goal of sanctification is so that there will be people who are building the bride. Paul says, if you've been given a gift, use it. Let us use it. Why is Paul saying this? Because just as he was sitting in Corinth, he's getting a report that the same problem was happening in Ephesus and in Rome. that people were becoming hmm, apathetic. That they were kind of beginning to sit back and just wait for church to happen on them, or at them. Paul says, no, 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 no. Each has been given a gift. Let us use them. And then he's going to give us a list of seven gifts. Why seven? Because, you know, seven! Eight's too many, six is too few, I don't know. Parchment's not cheap, I mean, I don't know. It's not an exhaustive list. There's some of these gifts that will overlap. We'll see them in Corinthians, we'll see them in 1 Peter, we'll see them in a Uh, in Ephesians and in Colossians. Sometimes there's more, sometimes there's fewer. In this case, he gives us seven because that's the ones he wants them to know about, which is really interesting. Paul's never been to Rome by the time he writes this. He's not been there. He does not know them. But he does say, for what's happening in Rome, these, at a minimum, are the gifts that need to be in operation in order for you as a church in Rome to be who God intends for you to be. That's interesting. In Corinth, he'll list some other ones. Peter will list some other ones. He'll list some different ones in Ephesians 4. He'll list some different ones in Colossians 4. But right here, having not even been there, doesn't know who has which gifts, this is the baseline. So that's instructive. The first one is the one that's caused a little bit of confusion for the last uh, carry the one, 2,000 years. But I want to explain what Paul's doing here. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, and that's the point. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now what's going on here? What does he mean when he says prophecy? In the Old Testament, the role of a prophet was primarily to interpret the word of God to the people. That's what a prophet in the Old Testament did. Thus says the Lord, this is what God says. God says, and then he would explain it. That's what an Old Testament prophet does. Occasionally, there would be a sign that would be a confirmation of his authority. And occasionally, he would be able to predict the future at God's direction as a demonstration of his authority, as a confirmation of his office. But that's not what's in view here. It's the same idea. In the New Testament, just like the Old, the role is to interpret the Word of God to the people of God in the Spirit of God. To simply say, thus says the Lord. It's what I do. This is God's Word. This is what it means. Hoping to get it right. Most of the time, I think that I do so that there can be some modicum of confidence as I stand and say, this is what God says, that's the goal and the gift of prophecy. It is not foretelling as though I'm predicting the future. It's forthtelling, simply giving utterance under the direction of the Holy Spirit of the Word of God. That's the New Testament idea and notion of prophecy. Certainly the way Paul means it here in Romans 12 verse 6 if prophecy in proportion to, but really it's analogous to our faith. We are to give prophetic utterance in accordance with the content of our confession. We are to say this is what God says and it is to be analogous, it is to be in keeping with all that we confess as a church. This is what we believe and our prophetic utterance, our preaching must line up with that. That's what Paul's talking about. So somebody needs to do that, Paul says, to those churches in Rome. Verse 7, and then he's going to give these next six gifts. And it's really rapid fire, staccato in Greek. The English translations try to dress it up and make it a lot more readable. But it's just serving, serve. Teaching, teach. Exhortation, exhort. He just kind of lays them out, bang, bang, bang. His point is, if this is your gift, then do it. And if this is your gift, then do this gift. If your gift is service, then quit worrying about why you don't get to be the preacher. If your gift is preaching, then quit worrying about why you don't get to be the exhorter. If this is your gift, then do it. Because Paul understood that what was happening in Corinth was beginning to happen in Rome, which happens in a lot of churches. People start looking around in comparison. Hey, how come I'm doing all the work? How come nobody else wants to work in the nursery? Why am I the only one working in the nursery? How come I'm the only one preaching? How come nobody else wants to preach? How come I'm the one serving nobody else wants to serve? Paul says, nip it, nip it. Find your gift, do your gift. So he says in verse 7, if it's service, in our serving, that word service is diakonos, through the dust. It's the word for a, a waiter of tables in antiquity. You kick up the dirt the dirt and the dust as you serve. It's what we call ministry. We have deacons, we have ministers, we have servant leaders. You just kick up the dirt as you do your service. If that's your gift, then do that. That's what you're supposed to be out. The one who teaches, in his teaching, there is a slight difference between teaching and the gift of prophecy or preaching in that we're simply leading others and making plain things that might not otherwise be plain. That might be life skills, that might be explaining biblical passages, it might be discipleship, how to do relationship counseling, all those different kinds of things, making clear that which would otherwise not be understood, that's teaching. If that's your gift, Paul says, then do it. Let us use them. Verse eight, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. If you're an encourager, if you're the kind of person that comes alongside and says, man, I see what you're going through. I see what you're doing. I just want to encourage you and tell you that we love you, we're for you, we're with you. Here's a Bundt cake. That's you. Then by all means, do that. The one who contributes in generosity. It's very strange. You don't usually hear people begging God. Oh God, please give me the gift of giving. I just so want to give away some more stuff. But it's actually a gift to be the kind of person who finds such joy in giving gifts to others. It's says to give with simplicity, literally. To give with single-minded focus with no ulterior motive so that you're not seen as that kind of person. You just do because you view yourself through the lens of the gospel and grace and faith. And that's the kind of thing that you do in generosity the one who leads with zeal the idea of lead here is to is to stand and preside we would get the idea of elders or pastors or administrators those who steward the resources of the church are to do so with energy with zeal not begrudgingly and then finally the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, the one who shows compassion. This is a very strange expression. It's never used any place else in talking about what humans do. It's always about what God does. God is the one who shows mercy. But Paul says here, in the church, there need to be people who like God gives mercy, you give mercy. Those who are in need of compassion and care and nurture and encouragement, you do so. And you do so with cheerfulness without grumbling. Paul says this is how all those pieces are supposed to fit together. Not coincidentally, I want you to all notice, please, that all these gifts that Paul mentions are all necessarily aimed at somebody else. None of them are self-serving. And so it's this redeemed mindset that says, my role in this place with these people is spirit-driven for the sake of others. And begins to change my worldview that others aren't in the way, others actually are. Are the way we need each other in this place so what I want to do is just Romans 12 3 through 8 I want to give just three very quick summary implications that I hope will apply this passage to our lives in a very pertinent way first implication goes like this the gospel transforms our thinking the gospel is not merely about you getting saved and going to heaven one day when you die The gospel transforms our thinking here and now. There's a reason that when you accepted Christ, you weren't instantaneously raptured out of the world and suddenly found yourself in the presence of God in heaven. No, there's some baking that he's still doing and the gospel is in the process of ever increasingly transforming your thinking. In Romans 12, three alone, that word think occurs four times. This emphasis on the transformation that we are to receive by the renewing of our minds. And yes, God does that. But now in this text we can see that we have a responsibility to rethink our thinking and to rein it in according to the gospel message and to choose to see others through the gospel not to see them as those people who live over there or vote for that guy but to choose to see them through the lens of the gospel since God has done a thing in Christ it's finished So now we can live lives of boldness and confidence that unleashes us to live the kind of lives that our world is desperate for, where I live my life, my life for you. My life for you, as opposed to the default pagan model of your lives for me. Everyone exists for me, or at the very least, they're in my way. No, 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 because of the gospel, we begin to look and think differently. By the way, the world outside the church is desperate for that sort of love and community, but they can never achieve it in their own strength because of the persistence of sin. Just like all of Paul's letters, he will always open his letter by saying grace and peace to you. Because there can be no peace unless someone has first received grace. And by definition, grace means something from the alien outside comes into you. You receive something that you do not deserve. And that is the only way you and I can ever experience peace and love and joy. We have the solution. We have the secret. And we didn't do it. We're the recipients of it. The whole world wants peace and love and joy. They do. They're not crazy. They want peace and love and joy. They just want it on their own terms. Peace and love and joy only come to us as a result of God's grace. Then the church is rooted and it is built up, just like Ephesians 2 says. Second point goes like this. Individuals are transformed to serve the body, not the other way around. In other words, when you get saved, you are for the church, not the other way around. The church isn't specifically for you. You are now for the others, for the group. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul tells us that we have been saved to do good works that Jesus prepared in advance for us to do. So, let me sort of back up a little bit, explain what that means. Before the foundations of the earth, God knew that His Son would supply the substitutionary atonement that we would need for us to have right standing before Him he also knew that we would need the indwelling spirit and a new mind to accomplish all that he wanted accomplished and that we would need gifts of grace to be able to do all of it and then he would reward us for doing precisely that it's an incredible deal I'm gonna prepare this in advance I'm gonna send my son to take away your sin to impute all of his righteousness I'm gonna send my spirit to indwell you I'm gonna give you the full canon of scripture I'm going to give you supernatural gifts that amplify your doing what I want you to do, and then I'm going to reward you for doing it. That's an incredible deal! I would never come up with something so amazing. But that's precisely what God has done. But don't miss the significance. We were saved to do good works for the body of Christ. We weren't saved so that we could simply find the best place that makes us feel most comfortable and at ease with other people who generally agree with us. Now, in other words, we want to create an environment in which you don't think of this place as a place where you come and get something, but this is the place where you come and give something of yourself, and you will never be fully fulfilled until you do. And so here are three incredibly super practical questions that I want to ask. I Listen, I love teaching doctrine. I love teaching theology. I don't ever get this practical, so take advantage of what I'm about to do. I'm never this helpful, so just go with me. Three immediately practical questions that I'm going to encourage you to write down, to prepare to answer, because if you don't know the answer to this question, I guarantee your spouse does (laughs) about you. And you're going to want to answer before he or she does. First question goes like this. Have you ever matched your gift with the right ministry need? What is it that makes you come alive what is it that makes you say, this gives me such joy, I could do this with boundless energy. I could do this and never get tired and it just warms my soul and it warms those around me. This is the thing. Have you ever actually thought through what that is and what that could be used for in the church? I want to make a very sincere and I'm very serious in this offer. We have a guy on staff that you've heard from already, Matt, uh, sorry, Mike Hall. Mike's job, his role, his pastoral responsibility at this campus is our equipping pastor. Mike's gift is unleashing people's gifts. This is what this guy does, it makes him come alive. He's the very best I've ever seen in the world. His favorite thing to do is to sit down with people over coffee or over a meal and sort of tease out and ask you questions, what is it that makes you come alive? What is your thing? And then he pairs you up with things that we have in this campus, in this church, in this community. It's what Mike does. He's our equipping pastor. And so in a very real sense, I'm gonna encourage you, if you don't know the answer to this question, to email Mike, Mike at com. He's waiting. And offer him up about four different time slots that you could perhaps meet together over coffee or over a meal and just sit down and let Mike sort of guide and direct where you can engage in this body of believers. He would love to do that. And I think you will come away from it different. So Mike at Bethelbible.com, he will help you to answer this question, finding your ministry gift with the ministry needs that we have at this campus. Second question, have you ever listed the ways in which you are ungifted or humbly weak? That one's probably not as much fun, but here again, I promise your spouse knows. I mentioned the other day, I was like, ah, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard because I, I have this... Uh, I have this this mercy gift I'm just I just and before I know it like this elbow was like right between the third and the fourth rib she was like really mercy you no okay I'm sorry I don't have the mercy gift that's pretty much bad sorry everyone I know some people with the mercy gift I actually am very very aware of all of my weaknesses and all of my ungiftedness And that's important to know because we don't want to put people persistently in an area of their ungiftedness. That's a recipe for burnout and for frustration in no time. And then the third question goes like this. Have you ever played matchmaker encouraging others to engage their gifts? This is what Mike does. But some of you who know people in your sphere of influence, in your life group, in your Bible study group, your friends, neighbors, coworkers, some of you need to experience the joy of saying man I see this in you there's an opportunity for you to engage with your your mercy gift your teaching gift your exhortation gift you need to be about this you need to set up shop and be this kind of person in this campus in this church and for you to play matchmaker is a tremendous joy where you get to be about seeing this body edified okay quickly the third point goes like this you hear this all the time but I want to say it again the local church is the hope of the world. So what Paul seems to be saying here to this group of people in Rome, with what he said to them in Corinth, what he said to them in Ephesus and in Colossae the local church is the hope of the world. God could bring about redemption any way he chose. He could communicate the gospel message through angels or directly or any other way. But in his sovereignty and in his grace, his plan is to have millions of groups of Christians gathering all over the world as a bright spot in an otherwise dark and dying world. These little local gatherings are like these embassies of the kingdom installed all over the world that people outside can stream into and they can find truth and grace and love. And it is a tragedy when one of these embassies gets corrupted and loses its way and misses its mission and begins to cause all kinds of damage. It happens all the time. But the church is to be this sovereign territory of the kingdom right in the middle of a hostile environment. That's what we're supposed to be about. The church is the new covenant community of the Spirit, where the blessings of the new covenant that God promised in the Old Testament are already being enjoyed by the people of the church. And then both Paul and the writer of Hebrews come along and say that we, the church, we get to be the mediators, the dispensers, and the distributors of the blessings of the new covenant in this age. That's what this world is so desperate for. In other words, the church may get all sorts of bad press in our day and age, and some of that is deservedly so, but the world needs to know that the church still exists and that it is principally about the love of God expressed in the sending of His Son. That is our hope. What I think the world needs to see from us primarily, yes, of course, is the gospel, but how we love one another, how we choose to view one another, that others aren't in the way,